way, let's talk about uh, one, of the, one of the key points Pastor made last week was he gave us a definition on revival. And he said this, a season of God's disrupt and restore. A season of God's disruptive movement among his people to stimulate, awaken, and restore. And today I want to introduce you to a woman named Hannah. And Hannah was very distressed. She was in a lot of pain. She was not meeting cultural expectations. She was in a bad marriage. And her prayer didn't seem to be going beyond the ceiling roof. She was in a bad, bad spot. And it was one of those places of distress that you find yourselves, not for a day or a week or two weeks, but one of those places that you find yourselves for a season. Have you ever been there of deep distress and it's just a season, it doesn't seem to go away? And that's where, where we find Hannah today. And that's where we want to pick up that story because it's an interesting story about a man, with, and, and she's in a bad marriage. I mean, she's got a, a husband and, and this husband of hers has two wives and she finds herself in the middle of that and in the middle of so much turmoil and pressure. And today we're going to study a little bit about Hannah. But before we do that, let's, let's look at the three things that we're going to learn from her. We're going to learn that through Hannah's disruptive season, God basically just touched Hannah in such a way that her life was transformed forever. But we'll look at Hannah's disruptive season. Hannah's response to her disruptive season. And I'll give you a heads up. Hannah's response to her disruptive season was prayer. And because she prayed, and I, I, I mean, I heard the songs today, and I, I was so excited about the flow and the songs and the prayer and, and the exhortation that was going on. Because I'm thinking, that's so in tune with the conversation. So I believe God is speaking to some of you today in, in a way that is very specific to your situation. And it's easy to walk on a day like today into a place like this and feel unknown or feel invisible. But you know that, that Hannah felt that way. She felt unknown, she felt invisible, and she felt like life was passing her by. But in the same way the God of Hannah touched her in a way that did not only identify her by name, but transform her present and her future, and she was able to impact her country in ways that we still feel today, God knows your name, God knows your address, God knows how many hairs you have on your head, and he has not forgotten about you. Other people may have, but he hasn't. And that's a reminder for you today. So Hannah's response, and number three, was Hannah's restoration. We'll end up on that because we're going to run out of time. But there's, this passage is so, so, so rich, and I'm only going to pull out just three key points. Hannah's disruptive season, and, and what we notice in her disruptive season is that pain was the toil. Pain was the toil God used in Hannah's life to turn her attention to seasons of pain like that. I mean, honestly, who likes pain? None of us. But it is in those seasons of pain and turmoil that we tend to grow the most and we tend to rely on God the most. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Years after, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. Whenever the day came from Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her 
in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, imagine that. Every time you come to church, there's somebody getting under your skin and under your skin, and they happen to be close to you or related to you or in your ministry. This was part of her dysfunctional family. And it said it happened year after year. I mean, she provoked her. Verse number eight, her husband Elkanah would say to her, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And verse 9 says, Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Once they had finished eating at Shiloh on that specific day, Hannah stood up. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery, and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son. Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will be used on his head. So what you have here is a man, two wives, and it's a very unhappy marriage. And, and there's two key issues here, and one of them, which is probably the secondary issue, and, and one that we're just going to just glimpse by, but we're not going to address in detail, is the fact that she is living in a polygamous relationship. And she is very unhappy because in this polygamous relationship, he has a wife that he loves more, and he has a wife that he loves less. But the most important issue, I believe, and the one that Scripture highlights in this passage is the fact that she doesn't have any children. And because of that, she is very, very, very bitter. And, I, and I've preached on this before, on, on when you have a closed womb and, and, and what does that does to a person in those barren seasons. But those of you that have never had the privilege of being a mom, celebrating babies like Mother's Day that we celebrated not too long ago, and it is on days where I want to acknowledge that God sees that as well. And that's where Hannah was in the middle of her life. She was sad because she didn't measure up. She was sad because she didn't measure up to the cultural ideal. And the cultural ideal of her life is that women were supposed to have many babies. And there were reasons before we jump into this, this evaluation of the oppressive culture that Hannah was in, there were, there were many reasons for that. But, but uh, we, can't, we can't just forget that there are cultures here today it's particularly in Europe and all around the world, that pay people to have babies, right? Uh, they will give you a stipend in some countries in Europe if you have babies because they want to expand the population. They call it universal child benefit, as a matter of fact. So there was an expectation, there was a cultural expectation on Hannah to have children. And the first expectation was an economic reason. The more children you had the more people you had to be able to work in the farm or the store. So the family business will grow in proportion to the number of kids that you had. You had more children, you had more people to work. So economically, it was convenient for the family, and economically, it was good for the country. So that was the number one reason that they had this expectation. There was an economical reason. The second reason was a security reason. There was no social security. There was no retirement fund that they were able to go to. So the more children you had, 
the more secure your future will be financially. The more children you had, the more those children will take care of you. So that was a second reason why culturally it was expected for her to have a lot of children. And thirdly, the more you had children, the better it was for the country. If there was a country that people had many children, militarily that country was going to be stronger. So from economical reasons, financial reasons, social reasons, cultural reasons, there was an expectation on Hannah that she had to fulfill and she was in meeting that expectation. And the expectation for us today may not be about children, but every culture, listen to this, every culture by definition is oppressive. I recognize South Africa, the United States don't have a culture or cultures or subcultures that may be as oppressive as Hannah's culture. But every culture by definition is oppressive. Why? Because every culture sets the rules and the guidelines on how people should behave. And if you don't conform those rules, they will marginalize you and push you away. So this is really important because in our day, we have expectations on beauty. We have expectations by the too, too, too heavy, uh, about are too thin, or you're too fat, or you're too pretty, or you're too ugly. I mean, and social media has even exacerbated that significantly to the level where that you see the eating disorders and the emotional disturbance, particularly after COVID, increase significantly throughout the world. So our culture has placed expectations on us. When should we marry? When should, the color of our skin? Yeah, I was telling Randy right before service, I have uh, half of my family, I come from a 16th Ghanaian family and a 66% from Spain, Canary Islands, living in the Caribbean. So you could imagine our family feuds. So ones were very racist, the ones that were right European, and the other ones were very racist because I was too dark for one and too light for the other. So I was never able to fit because you were able, you were always something that I did not fit the culture. And culture tells you you're too short, you're too tall, you're too this, you're too that. That's where Hannah finds herself day after day, year after year, moment after moment, especially when she went to the house of the Lord. Each culture is trying to absorb you. Each culture is trying to absorb you into their own systems of meaning so that you get to fit in. So Hannah is, is deeply troubled by this. She's not living according to the expectations, and that's the source of her deep distress. So now that you know the deep distress that she's going through, let's talk about number, point number two. Hannah's response to her disruptive season. Hannah's response to the demands placed on her that she could not fulfill. First of all, to understand Hannah's response, we understand we need to understand what she did not do before we understand what she actually did. And there's 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 it's a really interesting conversation. Professor of Berkeley University in California, he's a world-renowned authority in Hebrew literature and Hebrew narrative. And he, he, he really sheds some light on this passage in the way he takes Hebrew literature and Hebrew narrative and gives, gives us some information about that, what is going on here. He says, there are two voices in this passage that are speaking into Hannah. The first one is Penina, and Penina represents the culture. Penina represents the expectations of the culture. In other words, if you have children, 
you will be fulfilled. If you have children, you will be saved. If you have children, you will be loved more by your husband. If you have children, you will have certain standing and status on society. That is one voice. The second voice is the voice of her. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? In other words, he didn't get it like most husbands do. We don't get it. But he is saying, why are you weeping? Am I not enough? Look at the hunk of husband that you got. I mean, I should be more than enough for you. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad it worked. The joke worked here as well. But one thing we do know, he loved Hannah deeply. He loved Hannah deeply. How do I know that? Because we just read it. <laughs> we know that because he says he gave Hannah a double portion because he loved her. So what's happening here is he's telling Hannah, Hannah, don't worry about having kids. Just rely on me, your husband. I will be your everything. I will be your source. I'll be your provider. I will be your safety. I'll be everything. Why am I not enough for you? Don't you see that I love you more than I love her? What he is saying is, she gives me the babies, but you have my heart. Can you imagine a marriage like that? Okay, I'll, I'll leave that alone. But, but he, is telling, he is telling Hannah, Hannah, you have my love. Why is that not enough? Are you with me still? Okay, so you got those two voices. You would expect for Hannah to respond to that conversation. But the most incredible thing that happens in that passage is that Hannah doesn't respond to either cultural expectations and she doesn't respond to the love of someone that wants to assert basically the place of God in her heart. It's extremely important to see that we got two voices here. Both of them are saying, here's, here's how you can be happy. One is to depend on having children, and the other is to depend on your husband's love. In other words, culture is making promises that they, it cannot keep. So there's two voices. She doesn't answer to either. She's not giving in is what that means in Hebrew, Hebrew narrative. She's not giving in. She is not responding. She is basically not building her life on the cultural ideal imposed on her nor on her husband's affection or love. Hannah is basically saying, I don't want to resign to the typical feminine idol of the culture to then submit myself to the masculine, typical idol of the culture submitted to a marriage. That's really what she is saying. And she does not give in to the pressure, to the demands, or to the expectations to comply with social norm. Anything you build, listen up, any career, sports, on, instead of God, whatever that is, career, sports, good drugs, Whatever it is, our children, our spouse, looks good on the outside until you get inside of it because it will lead you to disappointment. That thing, that thing that you say, if I had this, if I had the job, if I had the car, if I had the house, if I had the right clothing, or if I had the right, I was able to live in the right neighborhood, I would be fulfilled. 
Basically, what Hannah is saying is anything you put your faith on that is not God will crumble down and lead you to disappointment. So Hannah is not responding. So this is what happens in verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. And you would think, okay, why do they have to dedicate a whole sentence to the fact that Hannah stood up? I mean, you know, if someone is eating, eventually they will stand up if they want to do something else. But uh, if we read it too quickly, we could glance over and think, okay, thank you for filling that in. But that is very, very significant. I'm going to rely on Alter again, the, the Hebrew scholar, because he says that's not just a phrase. It's an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language, which means stand up. Take your place. In English, we typically say in America to, to put your foot down. You know what that means, that statement means? She said, I'm going to put my foot down. So when we read it, we think that's what it says. But she says, today I stop being passive and I become active. Today I decide to take decisive action. Today I'm not going to let life happen to me anymore. I'm not going to let culture come at me anymore. Today I make a decision. Today I roll up my sleeves. Today I stand up. Today I mark a line on the sand. And today I take charge of my destiny, my future, and I'm not going to come to church. And every time somebody says something to me that is mean, that is hurtful, that will make me bitter or sad, that will not happen from this day forward. And she said, today I'm going to make, I'm going to take radical action today. I'm going to take decisive action. I'm standing up. And she took the most radical action you could ever take and you know what that was she prayed she prayed and i know that because the next verse she prays and she makes a vow she says lord almighty if you will only look at your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And I want us, I want us to really unpack this for a little bit so that we know exactly what is happening here. Hannah was sensitive enough that she was able to depart from the grind to the grand, to quote pastor. <laughs> depart from cultural expectations and, to, and the love of her husband into God's presence. What's so decisive about that prayer? What's so decisive? It, it, I mean, at a glance, it would, it would look like a new way of getting a child. At a glance, it, would lo it looks like she's negotiating with God, but she isn't. At a glance, you would think that she says, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you. And you would think, well, okay, so, so you're going to give him back to God. But that's not what she means. That is not what she is saying. And I know that because in verse 18, take a look at what it says. She says, may your servant find favor in your eyes. She is wrapping up her prayer. Then she went her way and ate something. Remember, she couldn't eat before. And, and look at what's happening here. This is, and her face was no longer downcast. And her face was no longer downcast. If she would have been negotiating, it would have been negotiation plus prayer plus child equals peace. 
<laughs> Are you with me? <laughs> Negotiation, prayer plus pregnancy equals peace. But that's not what happened here. She wasn't pregnant. She didn't have any guarantees that she was going to have a child. So what is going inside of Hannah that she prays this prayer so decisive that her countenance changed in an instant? She had a personal revival. She had a personal transformation as a result of positioning herself in a birthing position. She positioned herself in a place where she was going to receive such a deep transformation that it was going to impact herself, her family, her community, and her country, and her whole destiny. So everything changed. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes, God. May I just find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way, she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. That's a significant phrase, that her face was no longer downcast. And, and she had no clue whether God was going to give her a child or not. But, but this, is, this, is what this, is, this is what this is talking about in that passage. Levites, where it was one of the, tri one of the tribes of Israel, and Levites, Levites were dedicated to serving the temple. They could not have any property. They could not inherit anything. They basically worked and worshiped. And there were certain responsibilities that they were designed to do. And what she says is, I'm going to, if you give me a son, I'm going to make him a volunteer Levite. She is not just saying, okay, I'll, 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 I'll guide him into ministry. Basically, she said, I will give him back to you and he will be a Nazarite. And how we know that is because there are some signs about Nazarites. You wouldn't drink alcohol and you would not ever cut your hair. And she says at the end of that passage, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you, which means, and, and, and this is the beauty of this. This is the beauty. I'm almost done. Just about an hour and a half more and we're done. <laughs> I just want to make sure you were here because you were a little quiet. You were a little quiet. I started to worry. Okay. Nazarites, Nazarites were people that were separated, consecrated, very specific signs. I just gave you two. I couldn't cover all of them, but that was one. And if you want to understand what Hannah is doing here, you need to understand what was the emotional and financial reward of having a child. If you had a child and you were a Hebrew mom in Hannah's time, you would go to the market almost every day and you would take your children and you would talk about how successful they are. I think that's across cultures, right? You would tell them how successful they are, how proud they are. They would take out their pictures, their Instagram accounts, and tell them about their degrees and career and all the successes. That's what moms did in Hannah's time. If he became a Nazarite, she would never be able to do that because she dropped him off at the temple. That was number one. By Hannah saying, he will be in the house of the Lord and he will be a Nazarite, Hannah put her future in God's hand. Because Levites could not inherit. Levites could not have property. And remember I told you earlier, one of the reasons you have babies is so you could secure your future. Well, Hannah is saying, Lord, I'll give him back to you and my future and my destiny and my security is going to come from you, not from this baby. That's what Hannah is saying here. So, so, so Hannah is saying, and, and thirdly, and thirdly, the third reason you wanted to have a baby is because you wanted that emotional reward of being able to hug that baby. Those of you that have kids, you know how good it feels when that baby is about three 
I mean, when they're 13, 14, that's another story. <laughs> Lucky if you get a hug. But anyways, when they're a baby, when they're growing up, they, they just, you, you, their smell, their hugs, there's, there's just something about them that is special. And I'm not a mom, I'm just a dad, but I, I bet for moms, it's even more special. So Hannah was saying, Lord, I don't care about showing off my baby. Lord, I don't care about my future. Lord, I don't care about having hugs or not having hugs. In other words, I don't care about being lonely no more because my safety and my security is in you. My confidence is in you. My consolation is in you. My relationship is in you. So Lord, if you would have given me a baby in the past, that baby would have been my slave because I would have made him my idol. And I would have been his slave because I would have dedicated all of my life. But Lord, if, you, if it favors you if, you, if it pleases you and you want to give me a baby, I really, it is well with my soul if you give me a baby. And it is well with my soul if you don't give me a baby because I'm going to take it and give it right back to you because I found in you what I cannot find in a man, on marriage, on a husband, or meeting any of the cultural expectations that anyone has placed on me over the years. That's how Hannah experiences that revival. And that, that's the last point, Hannah's restoration. She experienced this personal revival. And this is where her restoration comes. Hannah is saying, Lord, I just, I just love you. I just love you so much. I've discovered something. And you're probably thinking, how does he know Hannah discovered all of that? Because you see her, she got up, she took control, she prayed, and then she sang a song then her baby eventually came, right? And we all know that. And it's Samuel and great things. He becomes a prophet. Incredible things happen as a result of that. But Hannah's greater awareness of God created a need for God's supernatural intervention in her disruption. And I think I, I, I want to I finalize this, this with this. Hannah experienced revival through the radical act of prayer. I love when, when Desiree was talking about, what if God does it? Perhaps. You may sound crazy to everybody. You may sound crazy to the cultural expectations and even to the expectations you have, you have placed on yourself about church and corporate worship and individual worship. But Hannah put all of that aside. She went into the house of the Lord, into the temple, and she cried out. I mean, I think tears were coming out of her nose and, and eyes and everywhere to the point where she's like, I don't care what other people think. I'm going after my God because what I have found in him, nothing else can fulfill. What I have found in him, and she starts singing a song, Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2. And she said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Are you still with me? <laughs> what was the culture telling her? Your heart will rejoice if you get the things that culture gives you. And Hannah says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies. But before that, she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. In other words, my face is lifted on high from the things that are down here that were making me weep, that were making me bitter, that were making me sad. He lifts my head up. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight with what? In your deliverance. 
He, she delights in her in his deliverance. And look what she says. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. In other way, my pain led me to revival. My pain led me to transformation. I don't ever want to go through that season again. But that season transformed me, transformed my family, transformed my future, and transformed my destiny. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighted the bows of the warriors are broken she discovers two things god's pattern in a person and you're reading that the bows of the warriors are broken but those who stumble are armed with strength she begins to discover that in your weakness something happens Something begins to happen. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash of heap. This is a woman that had been with the Lord. You just don't write this. You just don't come up with this stuff. You just got to be with the Lord. You got to be with him. You got to be transformed and renewed in his presence. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. In the last passage, he will, the last verse, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails i mean can you connect that to her life story when we read that it's so beautiful but when you connect that when you know someone's story you really know them and appreciate their perspective right so now you know a little bit more about hannah and she is saying it is not by strength because when i was at my weakest my god came through he came through with a miracle. He came through with transformation. He came through with a renewal where I thought there was no hope whatsoever in my circumstance. was dark and dim. He came and he shed light. And I began to see his pattern. And I began that he, to see that he works for the marginalized, that he works for the weak, that he works on behalf of the poor, that he brings renewal and revival from pain. That is his pattern. That is the pattern of God's salvation. You don't have to do it. He's a person. And, she, and it is all up with the last part of verse B, uh, 10, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. The anointed, I mean, scholars will, Hebrew scholars will say this was in a reference to David. Those of us that are Christian, yes, it was in reference to David, but it was in reference to the ultimate David. <laughs> she had discovered where her, survey, her salvation came from. He will, I mean, as a matter of fact, at that point in time, Israel had no king. And she's prophesying without knowing about a king that is yet to come. And God will exalt his head and lift him up. So this is, this is a powerful story. How do I know that? Because you know what happens in Luke 1, chapter 46 to, 40, uh, 46 to 55. I'm not going to read it all, but I need you to read this at home. Because this is what happens. This is Mary's prayer. Mary, the mother of Jesus. In Luke chapter 1, we call it Mary's song, right? But look at, I, I, I want you to listen just for the first few uh, sentences, the first few verses 
and, and, and think about what does this remind you of that we just read. <laughs> That's your hand. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of this servant. <laughs> Hannah declares, makes this prayer in the Old Testament. And here is Mary praying and, and copying basically Hannah's prayer. She is quoting Hannah from the Old Testament. She just found out she's pregnant, by the way, of Jesus, of the Messiah, of the anointed king to come. And she goes back to the Old Testament, pulls Hannah's prayer and said, wow, I don't know what happened here, but I do know Hannah's story. I don't know what my story is going to be, but if it's something similar to the encounter that Hannah had with my God, my God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, God, my God, I cannot imagine from from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And look at what it says. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. <laughs> Holy is his name. And then check this out. Check this out. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Does that sound like Hannah? Yes, it does. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. Does that sound like Hannah? Yes, it does. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. And you could go and read the rest of that prayer at home. God is a God of miracles. God is a God of purpose. God is a God that doesn't matter how you got here today about you, that he wanted to have a meeting, an appointment with you today to remind you, I haven't forgotten you. I have a purpose and a destiny for you. And if you surrender to him, he will bring revival, transformation that will not only impact you and change you, but it will change everything in how you see your circumstance and how your circumstances will be impacted by your faith, by your prayer, and by your understanding of God. There is nothing, nothing culture could put on you expectations. And, and this is really relevant for younger generations, but it's really relevant to older generations. There are cultural expectations that we have to let go because they're not kingdom expectations. And God says, I'm above culture. I'm, I, I'm above all those expectations that they've, that they've been placed on you. God is greater than our culture. He is greater than our past. He is greater and more powerful than what you've been going through or what you have gone through, or what they have done to you. Hannah discovered God's pattern. When you are weak, he becomes strong. And, God, and Hannah discovered the ultimate Savior, her God. And we have Jesus Christ. Please stand to your feet as I pray for you. And thank you for being such an attentive audience and hanging in with me in my terrible accent. So I appreciate it. God is your ultimate ideal. He's your ultimate ideal. And he wants to lead you. And if you really want to be free from cultural expectations, we just have to turn our hearts to him. So Heavenly Father, we come before you. Let us pray. Restructure our hearts. Allow us to get rid of culture and let us have freedom in you. Father, may... may psychological, sociological, and cultural revival of freedom that Hannah obtained, may we obtain it too. Lord, we believe in you. 
the Holy One that Hannah pointed to, the greatest son of promise. And today I pray, Lord, that you will remove guilt, shame, false expectations placed on ourselves, that you remove all of those things and the ultimate Savior comes and takes residence in our hearts. Father, today I pray that we'd be, we would be really free from what culture tells us, another tells us, what our hearts tells us, what our emotions tell us, and that we could truly be free through your salvation, your renewal, your transformation through Jesus Christ. Amen.